call to worship, which is found in your bulletin. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Let us pray. Lord God, here we are gathered in your holy name. And Lord, we are grateful for the many blessings and the ways that you work in our lives throughout each week. And so as we gather today, we lift your name up on high and worship you and you alone. Amen. great to see you as we gather for worship today. Take a moment and uh, share a word of peace, a word of greeting with others here in worship as well.
There are a number of inserts in your bulletin today, and um, one of them is about small groups that begin tonight and throughout the week, and you see those times and places listed there. And we encourage you to be a part of a group if you're not already. There is a group that meets here at the church. Uh, also, a number of the inserts are related to our upcoming missions convention, and Mim Case is going to share a few words of invitation to you about being involved in the convention. On behalf of the church's missions committee, I'd like to invite you to any and all, and there are many, of the different events about missions convention this year. It is not a one-event type of convention. This spreads over about a month of events. So look through this to get an idea of the types of things you can do. Our theme is Made New, and the centerpiece of this convention is happening right here on Sunday morning next week when Dr. Mike Walters will be speaking to us about this process of being made new at one point in time, but continually through our lives. The other events are this working out of our transformation into the community around us. We work with Wellspring Ministries, with the foster care system in our county, and then up with Westside Ministries in Buffalo as they're making new families for foster children, making new homes for refugees, and the whole creation of newness that can happen. So also in the bulletin is a blue form. If you can fill out and put into the offering plate as it comes around, or you can sign up in the back. This is so that we have an idea of how many people are coming to different events where we have food or need transportation. The other thing I'm asking for are old blue jeans and flannel shirts or flannel pajamas. The children on Wednesday night, this week and next week, will be cutting these up, taking the old and making new for quilts to give to foster care. So we'll work on that on the Wednesdays with them, and then Saturday at the baby shower, we'll be helping sew those together. So thank you very much. I hope you can be in attendance at some or all of these events. Thank you. The Old Testament scripture reading comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, and the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all the people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry out. And I said, What shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem... Lift your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, 
Here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, and all his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flocks like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. This is the word of the Lord. As the ushers come forward, I'd like to invite you to stand with me and let's sing the Gloria Patri. God, we thank you for the privilege of knowing you and experiencing you personally in our everyday life and the ways that you work and weave your miracles through us and in us. And God, as we gather today, one of the privileges we have is to give back to you and just say thank you from the depths of our hearts. So God, take these tithes, these gifts, these offerings as we give cheerfully to you. And we ask God that you would use them to further your kingdom, to your glory and to your honor. Amen. I invite you to join me for the prayer of confession that's printed in your bulletin. When the prayer is finished, we will spend 
more time in corporate prayer. And after this prayer, if you'd like to come and use the altar rail as the place where you offer your prayers, I invite you to join me. Let us pray together. God, you are reconciling all things to yourself. By entering our world, you revealed the depths of your love to us. In your coming, you gave us life and called us your children. You have been faithful to us, but we confess that we have not been faithful to you. You want to transform us into new creations, but we are content with the old. You want to take us to new depths, but we have settled for the surface. You have set us free, but we hold on to the chains of our past. Forgive us, Lord, for our sins. Those we confess, those we hide. The sins we ignore and justify, and those against our neighbor. Help us to live as citizens of your kingdom, so that the world sees your glory and your love. Amen. Please join me at the altar if you would like to. Holy Father, we come to this moment of prayer because we know we need you. And because we believe that you are good and merciful. And that you answer prayers in the way that you know is best. This morning, Father, we pray for all who grieve. And ask for your comforting presence upon each of them. We pray, Father, for all who are struggling with illness in the various ways in which it comes to us. We pray especially for Calvin and Laurel Buecher, for Warren Woolsey and Bill Getty, for Phil Muecher and Mike Raybuck, for Jill Tyson and Bruce Brenneman, for Bev Rett and Micah Christensen, for Linda Roth and Dick Gould, for Crystal Blake and Emily Cricklar, and for others who are on our hearts and our minds today. Father, we come today with So many burdens and concerns and struggles and worries and fears. So many needs. In this moment of silence, hear our prayers. Father, we thank you for the ministry of this church and for the various ways in which you work in our lives and in the lives of others. Today, we especially pray for our junior church ministry. Thank you for everyone who is involved in leading and working with this ministry. And we thank you for all of the children who are involved in this ministry. And we pray that that through this, you would instill in our children a, a deeper yearning for you not just now, but throughout all of their lives. We pray for the ministries of churches around us, and we especially remember the Rushford Baptist Church this morning. We pray that you will bless them, 
Pastor Finley and all of the people of this church. Help them to be an ongoing beacon of light in Rushford and beyond. May they know the blessing of your spirit with them. Father, we pray for our world in which we live. We pray for the medical dental team preparing to go to Haiti this week. Pour out your blessings upon them. May their ministry be used by you. We pray, Father, for uh, the, the refugees in Syria and other places of the world and ask that you would help them to find suitable places to live and that they would know your grace upon them. We pray for an end to violence in our nation and conflict in our world. And we think of the recent attacks. And we pray, Father, that you will bring healing. You will bring an end to the thought that terrorism is the solution to anything. Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world. Many of them, the, uh, the victims, and the recipients of violence and war and oppression. Lord, we, we pray for the Christians in Albania and uh, all that they have been through. We give you thanks that in this recent conference, Christians have come together and have recognized how they've hurt each other and have offered words of forgiveness and apology and you've brought unity to them and we pray that it will continue and we pray that their witness will inspire us in our commitment to unity. We thank you that the Shays are able to go back to Liberia and that they have now raised all of their support and we pray that that you will uh, enable them to get there as quickly as possible in just the right time that they will help with the ministry there. And Father, on this weekend when we, when we remember Dr. King and his influence on our nation and on the world, we pray that you will make us people who are, who are working toward peace and reconciliation in our nation and in this world that is torn apart. We pray, Father, for the gift of life, and we thank you for it, and we ask that you would make us people who are passionate about the sanctity of all human life. We know that you love every person. You have created every person. We pray that you will make us people who love others the way you love us, and you love them. Father, we thank you for all of your blessings on our lives. Continue to help us to to see you more and more at work in us and in this world. And be glorified as we continue in worship. Remembering the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
day eyes that are blind will see you clearly and one day all who deny will finally believe one day hearts made of stone will break in pieces and one day chains once unbroken will fall down at your feet so we to you. 
The New Testament reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And I'd like to ask that you would stand uh, with me as we uh, read the Gospel together. Hear the word of the Lord. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the, waters with wa- fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some water out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord.
Please be seated. Great pastor and theologian A.W. Tozer once made this statement. The thing that comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The thing that comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I couldn't agree more. When you think about it, whatever your view of God, it shapes how you think about life and how you think about yourself, how you think about other people, how you think about the world. And it doesn't matter if your view of God is what we might consider a a biblical view of God or your view of God is that God doesn't exist. Our view of God is a direct relation to how we think about ourselves and how we live our lives. It keeps coming back to that. And so William Temple, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, said that when your view of God is, is corrupt and twisted and incorrect, then the more religion you get, the more dangerous you become to yourself and to others. Because it comes back to our view of God. How many times do we hear people say, I did this because God told me to. And we stand back and say, I can't imagine God would say that to you. It's your view of God. There's something about our understanding of God that is wrapped up in, in the, the season of epiphany that we're in now. The season is um, the weeks between Christmas and Lent. And, and it, it focuses on how Jesus reveals God to people, particularly in the early stages of his ministry. It is is Jesus revealing not only God, not only the king, but the kingdom. What what is the kingdom like? What what is the king like? And so we come to this story of of John John chapter 2, of Jesus turning water into wine. The first story that we have of of Jesus in John's gospel doing a miracle. John says it's the first sign of the glory of Jesus. And he's in essence saying, here is the first glimpse of what the kingdom of God is like. And when this this idea of a sign is used in the scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament, it is not just something about what's happening in the moment, but it's what's going to happen in the future. It's leading us to something. This is a sign from God about this and about that. And as Jesus reveals the nature of the kingdom, he's not just saying it's about this moment, though it is, but it's bigger than that. It's about the kingdom. It's about the eternal kingdom. When Jesus ushers in the kingdom in all of its fullness, this is what it will be like. And in this story, we get a glimpse of one facet of the diamond that is the kingdom. And what interests me is is when we... When the disciples see Jesus perform this miracle, their response is to believe in him. 
Now that intrigues me. What is it about this miracle that causes the disciples to step back and say, wow, now I believe. Now when they say they believe, I don't think that means that they now understand everything it means for Jesus to be the Messiah, to Jesus to be the Son of God, the Savior of the world. As we read through the Gospels, we'll find that they don't have a clue yet, really, what, ta- what Jesus has come to do. They're still wrestling with that. But in this moment, as much as they know, they are declaring, we're in. Some of us said, he said, follow me. In chapter 1, he calls some disciples and they follow him. And now they're saying, we're not just following you, we're in with you. We believe. There's something about this story that grabs their hearts about what it means to be a part of the kingdom. So what is it that Jesus reveals? What glimpse do we get? What part, what facet of the diamond does this story show us? I think it's showing us that in the kingdom, Jesus is interested and involved in the commonness of our lives. In every moment of our lives. We have a tendency to think that God is involved in the times that we think of that are spiritual. You know, we come to church, we're reading our Bible, we're praying, we're talking with someone about Jesus. That's when God is present. That's what Jesus is interested in. I think one of the things that comes out of this story in terms of what it means to be a part of the kingdom and understand the mind and the heart of God is that he is interested and involved and and part of every single moment of our lives. Even the most common moments of our lives, like a wedding celebration. Weddings in first century Palestine are a little bit different than ours. When, uh, after the wedding, the bride and groom don't go off a hun- on a honeymoon, but they go to their house, and for a week or so, they host all of their guests. And they have this big week-long celebration. And it seems as though in this story, we've gotten somewhere in the middle of that week, and the wine has run out. And that means the party's coming to an end. I don't know how Mary gets involved in this story. I, I wonder... I don't know this by any means, but I wonder, it makes sense to me, that maybe one of her family members is the bride or the groom. Maybe even one of Jesus' siblings. And she's in charge of this, and and they will lose face if something isn't done, and she comes to Jesus. I don't think she's coming to Jesus looking for a miracle. I don't think she has quite that conception of Jesus yet. But if scholars are correct that Joseph... Jesus' father is already dead. That means Jesus is the head of the home. And when you have a problem like this, you go to the head of the home. And that would be the oldest son. And so she goes to Jesus. Hey, look, we got a problem here. You're going to have to fix it. And Jesus says, woman, what does that have to do with me? Now, if you've read this in some of the older translations, it feels kind of harsh. You know, it's almost as if Jesus is saying, woman, get away from me. I have nothing to do with you. That's not at all what he's saying. There's a respect in this term. It's, it's the same word Jesus uses as he hangs on the cross and he looks down at his mother and looks down at John and he says, woman, here's your son. There is tenderness and relationship in this word. It's not as harsh as it comes out in our English translation. But Jesus says, my time has not come yet. I can't do this. 
Now, there are lots of theories of what Jesus means by that. If he means, I'm not supposed to do this. The Father is saying to me, don't do that. My time has, your time hasn't come yet. Don't do that miracle. Then he disobeys the Father because he does it. So I don't think that's what he's, he means. When he talks about his time coming, it typically is related to how much of himself, how much he's going to reveal of himself as the Messiah, as the Son of God, as the one sent from God. And that's, I think that's why early on in his ministry when he performs miracles, he tells people, don't say too much about this because I don't want too much publicity yet. I think Jesus realizes that, that if people begin to understand and think that he is the Messiah, then they are going to want him to usher in the kingdom as they want it, not as he has come to bring it. And the people as a whole seem to, seem to want the kingdom, the, him to be the Messiah, so that they will crush the Romans, crush their enemies, and, and raise up Israel. And so it's a, it's a messiahship of power. And Jesus comes in humility and vulnerability. And the ultimate act of his coming is the cross. And people aren't going to get that for a while. It isn't until John chapter 12 that Jesus, in essence, says, my time has come, and he sets his face and moves toward Jerusalem. And we have that last week of his life. Part of me wonders, supposes, that maybe in the back of Jesus' mind, he's thinking, this doesn't seem like the right place to do the first miracle. It's just a wedding. Now, I'm not saying weddings aren't important. I can hear Jesus, I mean, God instituted marriage, and this is one of the things that comes out of this is God puts his stamp on marriage. But I just wonder if there isn't something in the back of Jesus' mind where he's thinking, shouldn't it at least be in the synagogue? Shouldn't at least we have the scriptures open? Shouldn't we do, be doing something more spiritual than a wedding celebration? I don't know. I am intrigued by this dialogue between Jesus and Mary because Jesus said, it's not my time yet. And Mary, and, and Mary says, oh, okay, I'm sorry, let's not do that. No, she says, there's a servant, just do what he tells you. It's almost Jesus like, what, did you not just hear me? What just happened here? You know, I mean, I had all these jokes about mothers that I was going to tell, but I'm afraid my mother might be listening, so I better not. But. <laughs> you know, I guess there is something that, in some sense, maybe you never stop being the child of your mother and you never stop being the mother of your children. You know, here's Jesus, 30 years old, and Mary's saying, look, I need you to do this. I'm not going to do this. Look, you do it. Your mother's talking to you right now. Do this. And he does it. God in the commonness of life. Like a wedding celebration. We have a tendency to want God to come in the extraordinary. In the big things of life. In those spiritual moments. And God, the kingdom is about God in every single moment. Every single circumstance. Every single situation. He is the God of every moment. 
And that means that when we pray, when we come to God, there is no burden, there is no situation, no circumstance too small, too trivial for God. I sometimes hear people say, well, you know, I kind of hate bothering God with that. He's got a lot of things he's dealing with. Man, he's got wars and terrorism and elections, and we got all these big things going on. God, to worry about my little problems. And we are back again to our twisted image of God and the kingdom. God is pleased when we come to him with every single thing in our lives because it declares that we believe God is who he says he is. When we, when we pray to God about the most minuscule things of our lives, we are giving glory to God and declaring he cares about us. And he cares about everything about us and everything about everyone else. There is nothing too small. It's God in the common. It's Brother Lawrence practicing the presence of God so that he senses God when he's peeling potatoes and setting the table for all of the other monks and taking out the garbage and cleaning out the kitchen and and tilling in the garden. God is in every single moment. That's the kingdom. It's not just about the extraordinary spiritual moments. It's about every moment. But I also think this story is telling us that the kingdom of God, not just that there is nothing too small for God, but also... And there's no, there's no moment too common for God. But also it's telling us that there is nothing too big for God. One of the things we see in the story is that Jesus is Lord of creation. He can take water and make wine out of it. This is exactly what John tells us in the beginning of his gospel. When he says, the word was with God and the word was God. He created, he existed in the beginning with God. He created everything through him. Nothing was created except through him. It's what Paul writes to the church in Colossae. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see. Thrones, kingdoms, rulers, authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else and he holds all creation together. This story tells us that that the kingdom is about Jesus who is Lord over all things, period. And he gives us a glimpse about the nature, kind of the kind of kingdom that he is Lord over. If Jesus is the Lord that he declares himself to be, and the scriptures tell us that he is, then not only is there no problem too small, there's no problem too big. And what I find interesting about this story is that when Jesus does this miracle, he doesn't just give them enough wine. He gives them an abundance of wine. 
you know, these pots, six pots, hold up to 30 gallons. And it's almost as if Jesus says to them, you want wine? I'll give you wine. How about 180 gallons worth of wine? More than they could ever use. More than they could need. There is something in that image about the kingdom being about abundance, not scarcity and stinginess. I think sometimes we have an image of God that we have to pry blessings out of God's hands. We don't. He loves to bless us abundantly beyond what we could dream or imagine. it's, It's what John writes again in chapter 1 when he talks about how Jesus comes and from his abundance we have all received one gracious blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ in abundance. It's what Paul writes to the Ephesians when he says, I want you to know, I pray that you will know how high and wide and long and deep is the love of God in Christ Jesus and that you will experience this love in a way that's beyond anything you could dream or imagine. This is the kingdom. I think it goes back to our view of God. If we view God as a God of scarcity and stinginess, we end up living lives of scarcity and stinginess. I I know some people who are, I think they have the gift of generosity. They are amazingly generous. And as I get to know them, they have a huge view of a generous God. That's why they're generous. See, the alternative is living in fear. We're afraid to be generous because what if God doesn't meet our needs? What if God doesn't, doesn't bless us as we need? So we've got to hang on to and hoard all of the things. And maybe that's why Jesus says, stop worrying about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or what you're going to wear. If your heavenly father takes care of the flowers of the field, he will take care of you. But it comes back to our view of the kingdom and our view of God. Is it abundance or scarcity? And I think wrapped up in that too is, is our, our sense that the kingdom is really not so much about celebration as it is maybe severity and strictness because that's what fear leads to. You know, we, I think the church has a hard time Embracing the kingdom of God as celebration. Now that doesn't mean that we ignore problems, that we don't lament difficulties and struggles. We do, but here's the truth is, we're pretty good at lament and we're pretty good at being serious. What I think we wrestle with is being joyous. And yet... In many ways, that's one of the definitions of holiness. My, I don't know about you, but in my background, I had this tendency to think of holiness connected to strictness. It was all about what you cannot do. And the people who were said to be holy were severe kind of people in my experience. 
I don't think that reflects the Holy Spirit at all. Because when Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is, he doesn't say the fruit of the Spirit is severity and strictness. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. And it doesn't mean that we're not serious about our faith or serious about God or serious about life. But maybe the issue is we take ourselves too seriously. And the kingdom is about celebration. This is a wedding. I I know people who have said to me, man, I really wish that story was not in the Bible. They get nervous about the whole wine thing, which I understand. I mean, quite frankly, alcohol is a big problem in our culture. And, and I have a problem with alcohol. I have a problem with all the ways in which alcohol is a part of our culture and all the damage that it does to people and lives. And it's a problem. And I don't think this, this story is telling us that it doesn't matter what you do. I mean, they don't have a lot of choices in their culture. But what I do find interesting about this story is that I think people get nervous because what Jesus is really doing is as the party's winding down in the middle of the week, he says, let's kick the party back into gear again. And quite frankly, I think that bothers a lot of Christians. And it shouldn't. Because when John tells us in his revelation what the kingdom of heaven is like, one of the images he gives us is a wedding feast, a celebration. It's joy. And again, it doesn't mean that we ignore the problems of the world. It doesn't mean that we aren't serious about our faith and about life. It just means in the midst of the struggles and the burdens and the concerns and the aching that we have about our world that's gone awry, underneath all of that, there is a sense of hope because Jesus is Lord. And ultimately, his greatest act of as Lord that this, this miracle is leading us toward is his resurrection. And the promise that those who are in him will also be resurrected. And that's a reason to rejoice and to celebrate, not just then, but now. You ought to change how we live now. Christians are not hopeless. We have the hope And that ought to be reflected in how we live as citizens of the kingdom. God in the common, doing more than we could dream or imagine. And in this story, Jesus is trying to to shake our foundations a little bit, just as he was, I think, the people in the first century when he actually did this. It's not a coincidence that it's ceremonial washing pots that he chooses to put the water in. And the wine to come out of. These big pots of water. People would ladle out the water. And they would pour it over the feet of travelers as they entered. Because of all the dust and things on them. But it was also about hand washing rituals. And they would pour the water down their arm. Down to the end of their fingers. And the water would run off both hands. And you would do this before you ate. And between all the courses of your meals. And you can understand that would be hygiene. And just would feel better after eating things with your hands many times. But it's much more than that. It became symbolic of being in right relationship with God. That's why Jesus is harassed by the Pharisees. His disciples don't, and Jesus himself, don't go through all the hand-washing rituals. Because they're in essence saying, we don't really think that that makes you right with God. 
It's not about the rituals. It's not about the legalism. It's not about confining us. It's about relationship. It's about God coming to us and and transforming us. It's about Jesus. So in a sense, Jesus is saying to them, let's use this symbol of a, of a, a corrupt view of God and let's do something new with this. Let's change it. And that's why he comes. I think this story is asking two things of us. I think one thing it's asking of us is that we live our lives looking for God in the commonness of life. I have discovered myself that when I look for God in life, I have a tendency to see him. And when I don't look for him, I have a tendency to miss him. It's being conscious Consciously looking for God, thinking about God, acknowledging God in the commonness of life every moment. And the second thing is in the moments of life, to trust, to believe like the disciples, that Jesus is Lord of all. He can handle our problems. He can handle our struggles and our difficulties, those of our lives and those of the world. And we trust and we believe that he is who he says he is. And maybe those two things have a lot to do with what it means to be a part of the kingdom. So go back to what Tozer said. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So, what comes to our minds when we think about God? Father, we pray that you will give us eyes to see and that you will give us the grace to trust, to believe. And fill us with the fullness of you, your kingdom. We pray this through Jesus. Amen.
receive the benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen. Thank you.